I'm Kyle. And I'm Jason. And this is Monetize Media. On today's episode, we speak with Joe Polizzi, the godfather of content monetization, who literally wrote the book, Content Inc. Joe is an accomplished digital media expert who is a best-selling author, podcaster, speaker, and so much more. Joe is one of the world's top content marketing authorities. He has founded three companies, including the Content Marketing Institute, launched dozens of events, and is the recipient of the 2014 John Caldwell Lifetime Achievement Award for Content Marketing from the Content Council. Hard to be more distinguished than that in this space. Listen now as Joe walks us through his content marketing journey, what trends he is seeing today, and the importance of building your email list. On to the interview. Okay, let's welcome Joe Polizzi to the show. Joe, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. How you doing, guys? Pretty good, pretty good. So I want to tell our listeners a quick story. So Joe, you and I came across each other on, I believe, Simon Owen's uh, Roundtable podcast about a month or two ago. That's right. And I didn't see you, but I heard your voice. And you narrated your own audiobook, Content Inc., correct? That is correct. And when I heard your voice, I was like, that's the guy that I was walking my dog to down at the beach in the summer of 21, listening to Content Inc., which is a fantastic book. And I will tell you, you have the distinction of being, your book has the distinction of being one of only four books that I've listened to and then bought afterwards to reference a text version. Oh my gosh. Well, bless you. Bless you, sir. (laughs) I feel so good about this. This is the greatest interview ever so far. Buttering up the guest. <laughs> but you joined Tim Ferriss, Ramit Sethi, and uh, the guy who wrote Never Split the Difference, the negotiating book. All good ones. Well, I'm, I'm honored. And yeah, I, I actually enjoy doing the audio version. It's a lot easier than it used to be because when I started my first book that I did, Epic Content Marketing, was back in 2013. I went into the studio, did the whole thing, had to rent the time. And now I did it at this trusty microphone I'm talking to you now, and it's much easier. And although having a production editor is really important, you never want to do that yourself. How long does it take? I've always wondered. It seems laborious. So it generally takes me two days. So Content Inc., the one that you're talking about, I think was eight and a half hours of actual time that you listened to it. And so probably double that in the amount of files that I send to the production editor. So basically what I'll do is I'll start reading something and then if I mess up, I pause and I'll go start again and that's where the production editor comes in. And um, used to take two or two and a half days in studio time. It was always like, you know, you're traveling somewhere, it's a lot easier to do it at home. And, and the only one, I've recorded the audio versions for all my books except for my fiction novel, The Will to Die, which I actually tried to do and then I realized that I can't do voices and this is going to be a catastrophe if I keep going. So I just said, and so I hired Kyle Tate, who is an amazing voice actor and did the whole thing and it was tremendous. So you'll stick to nonfiction. Absolutely. So Joe, why don't you tell, you know, we know quite a bit about your background, but why don't you kind of fill our listeners in on your origin story, some of the businesses besides being an author that you've started, where you're at now and, you know, working your way up to today? Well, yeah. So God, where to start? I've been in business publishing for over 20 years now. I started at a company called Penton Custom Media, which was a $300, $400 million business to business media company, magazines and events mostly. And I was lucky enough to fall into their, what was called a custom media department, which basically was we did content marketing projects for big B2B companies like Autodesk and Microsoft and whatnot, which ended up being custom magazines. And then they turned into podcasts and then they turned into webinar programs and all kinds of stuff. This was before anybody talked about content marketing. And we started, actually, we pro- if we're given credit for anything, we started to talk about the term content marketing in 2001, was the first that I started fiddling with it on sales calls. And then we were very successful, even though Penton went through a lot of hard times during that point, went down from, and when I started with the cup, February of 2000, the Penton stock was $32 or $34 a share. And 18 months later, it was seven cents. So I added a lot of value to Penton. We made it out. It's okay. It was a good good sell. But our department did really well because content marketing was trying 
starting to take off. And that's when I realized, oh my God, with the launch of Google and then social media, companies are going to have to learn to tell their own stories. Basically, every company is going to have to be a media company. Nobody knows how to do it. And in 2007, I launched, went out on my own and launched what became Content Marketing Institute, which was an education and training platform for marketers to learn the art and science of content marketing. We're probably best known for Content Marketing World, which became the largest event. Uh, in 2015, I think we hit 4,000 in-person attendees in Cleveland, in Cleveland, Ohio. That's my hometown. And then had a really successful exit. My wife and I own the company. In 2016, we exited. Uh, I did a number of things from 17 to 20. Uh, you know, as I said, wrote the fiction novel. I've written five other content marketing books and then came back and launched another company to my wife's displeasure <laughs> in, in uh, 2021, The Tilt. So it's the same type of you know education training platform, but instead of focusing on marketers with content marketing, we teach content entrepreneurs how to run content first businesses. Basically, how do you build an audience first and then monetize that audience? And so that's, we're coming up on our two year anniversary of that. And we've got an event as well, Creator Economy Expo that happens every May. It'll be our second one in 23 in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm very, I'm a Cleveland homer. So I try to do all my events in Cleveland, Ohio, if we can. And you and LeBron. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I was doing it before LeBron. He did it a lot better. Let's let's put it that way. But yeah, so I've got two podcasts, Content Inc. and This Old Marketing and seven books and create content all the time. I love being on podcasts and just evangelizing this practice of, of content marketing and media monetization. Walk our readers through some of the business models you've used along the way, particularly for Content Marketing Institute. The events kind of are, are self-explanatory, but talk about the ways in which you monetize because so much of what we really, we really want to focus on. So I think you know the, the more modern, the newer creator, and they're probably learning this the hard way right now, is just, just relying on those, those YouTube ads or those uh, influencer dollars is, is not a great business. You've built a business over time. Talk about the ways and the models and the revenue streams you've built out and how you think about building a diverse business. I saw you had a post on LinkedIn the other day about this too. Sure. When I left Penton in 2007, I launched the actual, the business was called Junta42, which I thought was the greatest Web2 name at the time. We don't have to go into it, but it was it was basically a product that was the eHarmony for content marketing. And the hope was to match up content marketing agencies and journalists with brands that wanted content marketing services. And we were going to match them up in the middle and it started to work fairly well. And it was a financial disaster. We lost a ton of money on it. And I finally made this recognition in 2009 that we weren't going to survive. And through the angst and the gut-wrenching time period that it took, I realized we're doing it wrong. Like we launched product first. And today, the best business model, in my opinion, is to launch by building an audience first, understanding the needs and wants of your audience, and then launching products. Luckily, while we were launching Junta42, I also launched a blog called The Content Marketing Revolution. It started to get a lot of traction. So while I'm really focusing on this eHarmony product thing, at the same time, we're getting lots of, we're getting really good search traction around content marketing. Nobody was really calling it content marketing at the time. And then late... probably launched my newsletter, I think it was in 2009, way later than I should have. But that's when I realized is that even though I had a focus, I was doing some really good job on Twitter and LinkedIn, focusing on owned property, controlled property, like an email list, email database is the most important thing you can do. So in 2010, we rebranded everything as Content Marketing Institute. And really, as the core was our website, our blog, which was became a daily blog, and a newsletter, which by the time we sold was about 250,000 marketers had subscribed to this newsletter, which is a really good size for a business-to-business newsletter, which is why we were able to get really good valuation when we sold the company. So I was like, okay, well, how do we monetize this as we go into 2010? My whole thing about monetization is focus on a few ways to build audience, focus on as many ways as you possibly can to monetize. So we did that, as you say, through Content Marketing World that became our largest revenue and profit generator by far. Uh, We were about 75% people that signed up registrations, delegates to the event, and 25% sponsorship. We also sold direct emails. So people would rent our, we wouldn't sell the data. We would let them, we would send an email on our behalf to our audience. And those, you know, we would sell for quite a, quite a good premium to send those out about once or twice a month. We would do 
three webinars a month. We would sell those webinars between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars to sell. We would generally get you know three hundred or four hundred registrations. We all you always get about thirty to forty percent to attend those things, and people would spend a lot of money for those. Those those did well. So that was a million dollar property in and of itself. Just the webinar business, the email business was almost a million dollars in selling those. We did some sponsorship in the newsletter and on the site at time. That was much lower. That was only a six figure business. We had a consulting practice as well. So I partnered with Robert Rose, who is our chief consultant, and we had a revenue share going from that standpoint. And then we had a little bit of affiliate revenue. We had an ongoing, some training revenue. It was a little bit of everything as we went, but the, the core was the event business. And then we sprinkled in a little bit of everything else, but just people that sell their business. If you have a media business, events sell at a higher premium. They sell like a subscription business. And what was great when we sold the the whole thing, every dollar of profit and every dollar of revenue was counted as the core event business. So even though we had, let's say, a consulting business that nobody wanted, that revenue and that profit was counted as the same multiple. So that's when you look at, we're not getting into this yet, but when you look at selling your business, if you know you're going to sell your business in the next year or two and you add on any kind of revenue and profit, it can most likely add to the overall valuation of the company. So that was that was the CMI model. And by the way, this is the crazy thing. We had two full-time employees. Oh my goodness. For that. And then we ended up, we were a $10 million business. And this is no secret. We sold, we sold a 17.9 million and then plus a couple of years earn out. So it worked out fantastic, but we were a big believer in contractors. So we had about 26 contractors that worked in the business at the same time. That's a lot to manage with two people though. 26 contractors is a pretty big number. It is, but what we were finding, it's, it's funny if you go back now today, it's like old hat. There's Everybody's working from home, but at the time in 2007, 2008, not a lot of this was, was going on, but we, almost all of the people that worked in the business, we had some relationship with them first. Like I would get a relationship with, like for our, our people who became our chief editor, Michelle Lynn, I saw her tweeting on Twitter at the time. And then I sent her an email and we had a little interaction. I had a phone call. So I had some kind of relationship with her. And then the the chief editor position came along and she was there and it's great. And she wanted to work from home and everything worked perfectly. So yeah, you have to be careful with it. But if you get some people that know how to work on their own, like here's a really good example that'll, I think some people will resonate with. When we went out and we hired some people and actually took them from the corporate environment and said, okay, you're a full-time salaried position with us. You're going to move back. You're going to go to 32 hours. You're going to be a contractor position and you're going to have to work on your own time. Those all ended up being disastrous. Mm. They didn't know how to do that. They they had to go into the office. They had to be with a team. That's how they were motivated. It was very difficult for them. So when we went out with contractors, I wanted to focus on people that already knew how to work that way. It's really interesting. And and this might be a strained analogy, but I've always, if if you remember in 2020 when everything shut down and the late night hosts were doing the shows from their basements, uh, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, right? And they weren't good. Like they weren't funny. You know, I don't particularly watch them that much anyway, but like with a studio audience, there's a certain energy and you realize when they just became a YouTube creator compared to people that were making, used to making videos on their own and had a, had a win with merit with the audience, right? No corporate environment, no one giving you the job. They looked like everybody else and they weren't as good as anybody else. It's a strained analogy, but I've worked over the years with people from who were major sports reporters in major markets on television, had big followings, and they were uh, sports talk radio hosts in major markets and they wanted to go on the internet, they wanted to do their own podcast, they wanted to write for our sites. And I was like, oh, this is great, these people are gonna be great, they have a following, they're well known, they're established, they can get good interviews. And I was like, wow, the merit is not there. It's a different format, to be fair to them, but it's a lot different when you actually have to earn the audience versus, you know, kind of work your way up and for a platform or a media outlet that just thrusts you in front of that audience. Oh, you're absolutely right. I think one of the keys is, is like, so our podcast, This Old Marketing, we've just celebrated our 10th year doing this whole thing. And I think one of the reasons why we're successful is we have a format is so we open up the show. We usually talk about NFL football, how bad the Browns are, how good the Cowboys are. And uh, I'm a Browns fan. Robert's a Cowboys fan. And then we go through. Okay. We're Eagles fans. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> so then we go through. Once we get that done, we go through and say, okay, now this is the news part of the show. And then once we get to that point, then we do rants and raves part of the show. We're set up like pardon the interruption. That's what the show is based off of. But I think what a lot of people forget is like, oh, okay, well, we're just going to do a podcast. Well, it's going to be, oh, it's just going to be Q&A. We're going to, well, you've got to figure 
figure out like you have your set format for how you're doing it you have to have a set format and you can get whatever talent you want to if you don't do it the right way that's why I like uh, Scott Galloway Prof G has a really good podcast and every one of his shows is set up a different way and it's produced a little bit differently and I don't think enough people go in to say hey we're telling stories we've got to figure out how this story we're going to shape this story so people will stay interested for a long period of time and I really like what you said and again not to get too in the weeds on the acquisition but it sounds like with the events business you just picked the one with the higher multiple and you're like I'm going to sign all my revenue and when I'm selling it I'm going to I'm going to point to this and that's I'm not going to settle for anything less it's such a smart way of thinking about it well I mean if you look if you look at the subscription model you know that might sell for eight to nine times earnings depending on who you're talking to in, in B2B publishing if you're looking at an affiliate model you may be more around three to five if you're just on an, a sole advertising sponsorship model that might be around five times if you look at an event model you're, you could go eight to twelve depending on the type of event we were a high growth event with a high yield. And I'm like, okay, when we were new, we were going to sell. I'm like, where can we bolt on? So we actually had two bolt on properties that we purchased in 2013 and 2014, specifically because they felt they filled holes in our business model. But also at the same time, I'm like, oh my God, if we buy this for $500,000, I can add two, 2.5 million to the overall sales price. And I don't know if a lot of, and I know a lot of my friends do that in the media business, but I don't know if people who are outside the media business know that that's actually a thing. It's like, oh, we're ready to sell in the next two years. What can we do to take it from a 20 million sell to a 40 million sale or whatever the case is. We did something like that when we knew we were in a position, we went out and acquired a site called uh, Elite Sports New York because we knew New York sports gambling was coming within you know, a couple of years. So we figured you know, we leveraged, and one of us borrowed against our houses and then we went out and bought the site and I certainly added to the multiple because the New York market was going to be so large. At the time, I don't know if we thought we were you know, being so strategic as it was it just, you know, seemed like a good idea. Well, I mean, it worked. Yeah, it worked out, right? Well, you look at Joe's better. Yeah, it works out. Right. But yeah, but you can be strategic. It's funny. The the same thing goes for I mean, I really cover I mean, I've covered the marketing acquisition space for a while. You know, you, you work with a company like an Aero Electronics or an electronics distribution company, Fortune 119 company. They bought 52 media brands mostly from UBM, uh, now in Forma. And they said, okay, well, we want to be the leading media company in this space. I know we're not a media company. How do we do that? Well, we could spend three to five years and grow and spend all the money and take time. Or we've got some cash sitting around. How do we put this cash to work? So it's funny, if you look at their media properties, not only are they the, the largest media company in the electronic space, they're selling all kinds of products and services, and each one of those brands are profitable. So a lot of people don't realize that this is marketing today. Marketing is media, media is marketing, however you want to put it. But you're seeing a lot of these acquisitions happen on the marketing side. And anybody, an individual can do this. You can do it as a marketer in a company. You can, anybody can look to do this. And I think you're going to see a lot of these deals happen because you've got companies out there that have cash and they want to build audiences and they look and they say, oh, it's really hard to build a media company. Well, let's not. Let's just go out and buy the talent. And that's where if you're a, an influencer or an individual content entrepreneur, you have a lot of opportunity right now because your buyers aren't just media companies anymore. They're literally any company in your market. And I think as content starts getting niched down more and more, that makes you more attractive to certain businesses because no, you're no longer just creating content about an entire industry or something so generic. You know, People are creating content about very specific products or companies. And then all of a sudden, they have a very, very natural acquirer. Joe, talk about being able to have success with a book because you you have an audience. And this is one of those, I want to say, you know, long tail, long term things that happens when you're able to build a dedicated audience, build a list. It might not be obvious on the day you're building it, and it might be eight years later you decide, I have a product I want to sell or a book. So talk about how important it is to open up future opportunities. I know you do speaking engagements, things like that. Well, first of all, if anybody asks that they want to get into the content business in any way or the media business, they say, well, should I go to this school or should I take this class or whatever? And they're all usually really good ideas. And But I just say, just go build an audience. I don't care what it's in. I don't care if you collect butterflies or it's photography or doesn't matter what it is. It could be Brown's football and you'll be really depressed. But if you build an audience, then you've proven to everyone, not only have you proven to anybody that wants to hire you that you know how to do this because every one of these companies want it, but you could also at the same time build an asset. So I really believe in that whole model. And anybody that if you want to be known, right? If you're known, everything else is easier for you. It's easier to get a job. It's easier to monetize. You have more free time. So how do you become known? And I, it's, 
I always look at it as the three legs of the stool. One is what's your core platform? You know, when I launched CMI, it was the blog. That then blog, email, newsletter combo. Uh, today, it could be a TikTok channel. It could be a podcast, whatever the case is. You have the blog. And then just as part of that is, what do you stand for in your business, in your core niche, as you call it? That's a book. Like you should look and say, okay, what's my mission? How do I turn that mission into a book? And so when we, when I launched, and this is 2009, you know, Get Content, Get Customers was my first book. And that was the whole practice, first initially, you know, this content marketing thing. And then that became Managing Content Marketing, my second book, Epic Content Marketing, my third, and then Content Inc. was my fourth book. So that that is the second leg of the stool. And then speaking is the thing that brings it all together and you really show your thought leadership. I never thought that people would pay me to come in and go speak. It was never thought of that way. But when you get to that level, everything else works. You speak, people buy your books, they sign up for your blog, and it just worked. They all work together as a flywheel. And I don't think enough people think about that strategically as an ongoing thing. And I don't think you have to be a media company or media entrepreneur to do that. I think everyone who has any kind of expertise should focus on that kind of thing. And and what's great about it is you don't need to get a deal like I did with McGraw Hill. You know, you've got a great provider like Lulu out there and you could you could print your book however you want to and you could do a deal with Audible or Spotify and do your audiobook. So these things are available today than ever before, but I think you need to think strategically so as people are putting together their annual goals early in the year, let's put down, you know, wh- ask yourself the question, what do you want to be known for? And if you can scratch out even the smallest niche of something, you will create more and more value. You're, you will become an asset and then a platform and a book and a speaking that will help you do that. So I always look at what's your what's your three legs? And I sit down and I do consulting with somebody. I say, okay, what are they? What's your platform? Okay, what's the book you're going to write? And then how do you parlay that into getting in front of people on a regular basis and spreading that message? I think one of the most important things you just said is that when you when you speak with someone about that and what I continue to see when you know, people will ultimately end up asking us like, well, hey, like how did you do that? And you know, ultimately, they just think there was always a grand plan, you know, and you, you then start to explain to them, well, you know, was, I just happened to meet this person and this was recommended and I was into this. And then to your point, it all kind of just gloms together to be a, you know, a solid opportunity. But my point being, so many people do not understand their asset, their talent, their expertise. They, they don't understand what they have truly is something that can be used to build an audience. Like, my wife works in, in pharma, and I had told her countless times, I've given her ideas of like, I say, I say, Daniel, you could do this, this, and this. And that thought is not even in her brain as, an, as to utilize her knowledge and her experience in an entrepreneurial way, because she has been in big pharma the whole time. And I think there are so many people out there, probably some of our listeners too, they just can't conceptualize it, and they need to read a book or speak to someone like you to understand and get that first step out the door to then begin to see how it all can come together. And I think it's unfortunate that so many people don't use that talent in a way that could give them some of that, you know, financial time, freedom, et cetera. I have a lot of friends in this position and they, and there's nothing wrong with working the nine to five. Like that's totally fine. Some people don't want to take on the risk of being an entrepreneur. And there's a lot of things that come with that, that probably aren't all that positive. I think it's mostly positive than negative, but whatever. But when I started to really realize opportunities for me, to your point was I would say, okay, I'm not going to watch this movie. I'm going to read this book. Like today, I'm not going to binge on this Netflix series. I'm going to go and, and and go through this podcast, read this book, talk to this person, read this article, whatever. I always try to make it so I'm thinking about something different. And that goes for fiction, too. Like my best source for writing ideas on the business side is reading fiction. It just has always happened that way. So and, and I and when people say to me, oh, I don't have time to do that. But then they go on and talk about they watch binged all a Game of Thrones or or Wednesday or whatever. And nothing wrong with that. I'm not judging. I'm just saying we have so much time. Time is our most important asset. And you just have to be a little bit, you don't have to use all your time efficiently, but just a little bit more time focusing on how can you build an asset so you don't have to work your whole life and be unhappy. I mean, that's really what it's about. We want, like we're talking on this show right now. What are we really talking about? We're talking about financial freedom. 
Yeah. So that we can do all the things we want to do. That's the whole purpose of this. It's a whole purpose of starting a business so I can spend more time with my family and my kids. So we don't have to work the nine to five. And when we're retired at 70, whatever, we have something left over. So that's what that's what I get excited about. And to your point, I think that we just have to make a few small decisions and do those small decisions every day. And after six months, nine months, you're like, oh, my God. That's why I always say, like, if you're going to, you know, I got a lot of people do New Year's goals and then they put it in a drawer. Okay, you make a New Year's goal or whatever that goal is. First of all, make it specific, make it measurable and review that thing every day. Because if you don't review it, there you go. You got your notes. See, I got my, I got 70,000 here on my desk, but here's the one I'm working on right now. And I like this one, the field notes one, because I could put it in my pocket and take it with me just in case I'm somewhere. But yeah, that's the kind of thing that we have to do. And, and it's not like it's rocket science. I mean, I've just, I've read books over the years and said, hey, yeah, you write down your goals and then you review them on a regular basis. You're more likely to succeed. Hey, I can do that. So it's not you know, spend less than 1% of your day, less 15 minutes on a plan for your day and a plan for your week. And that and it makes everything so much easier. And you just don't realize it at the time. You think, oh, this is silly. But then after six months, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I got that many subscribers, or I can't believe now somebody's asking me to speak at this event or whatever the case is. Totally. That's such good advice, especially on a daily basis. Even if you begin carving out one hour a day, it might not seem like each day to doing something other than to your point, watching Netflix and things like that. And, you know, you spend time with your wife and, you know, we will pick a show. We watch White Lotus, but that's it. Like, you know, we pick one and enjoy it. But if you can just start carving that out, it, it compounds over time. And it's not, I think the message for people is it's not that hard either to get the right followers. And we had, it was either Miles Beckler or uh, Adam Vasquez was on before, and they said, even if you get 100 people, in the world of creating content, 100 people doesn't seem like that many. But they said, how many times are, you will be more, Joe, because you're out speaking, right? But how many times is somebody in front of 100, speaking in front of 100 people who are in their industry? And for most people, it's zero. It's one time they presented at a giant work event. And to build an audience of 100 people across the entire world who's interested in your topic is not that difficult. It's something you could do in months or a year, depending on how niche and what the field is. And like, you know, that's the point I think people really struggle to get, that like they can grow their personal brand, their opportunity. It might not even be monetizing through content. It might just be put, getting in front of the right hiring manager or whatever it is. And it's not that hard. You know, you think about it in terms of tens and hundreds of people, and you can get your head around it pretty quickly. Oh, my God. It's so right. I mean... So I don't know if you follow Justin Welsh. He's fairly known on LinkedIn now. He's he's done a great job of building his following. And I love the simplicity. He basically says, I post two times a day on LinkedIn and I comment on other people's platforms on LinkedIn. It takes me about a half hour. I spend a half hour just on one topic, which is solopreneurship for him. Like for me, it might be content marketing or content entrepreneurship. He said, and that's all I did for a year. And after that year, he had 300,000 followers on LinkedIn and he's got a $6 million business. Now, doesn't happen to everyone like that, but just the focus on just doing that. He only works a couple hours a day and just that focus. So if you're in any job, just say, okay, what do I want to be known? What's my thing? And we call that, the, as, as you know, Kyle, we call that the content tilt in the Content Inc. book. So what's your content tilt? What's your area of differentiation over anyone else? You write that on. I'm going to talk about that. Put two posts a day on LinkedIn. And then you say, where are my customers hanging out on LinkedIn? It's like, okay, I'm going to follow those or my audience. Where's my audience hanging out on LinkedIn? I'm going to follow these five to 10 people and I'm going to comment on their stuff every day. Good. There's a half hour a day. You do that in six months, your world will change. But the issue is, where does it all break down? Somebody will do it for a week and stop. That's it. Like when I used to go in, I used to do a ton of consulting for these multi-billion dollar companies around content marketing, and they'd want to know the secret. What's the secret to content marketing success? And I said, that's easy. Keep going. Don't stop. Why do most content marketing plans fail? Because after six to nine months, somebody stops them or it's a campaign. I always do the whole thing. Oh, it's just a marathon, not a sprint. I'll do the whole, uh, you know, trying to psych them all up. But that's the truth. It's like if you look at most programs, they'll say, oh, it didn't work or the audience didn't didn't align with our sales objectives or whatever. I'm like, well, how long did you give it? Oh, we gave it nine months. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like I come from media. You need a three-year plan. Sometimes it takes you 18 months to 24 months just to get traction or just to get enough feedback from your audience. So we could talk about this forever, but it's the stopping that kills me when people, it's like, 
just don't stop. And then you only pivot when you learn something. It's like, oh, there's an aha. I'm going to change and then do this differently. People don't think about the compounding nature. I and mean, we actually jokingly at the end of the show, we'll tell people to tell two friends, tag two friends, tell two friends about the podcast. And you know what we're really trying to get to is compound growth. And I don't know if mathematically that's correct, but it's the same idea. You know, people think it like linear and it's like, okay, if we're, if we're adding five people a day, we're only adding five people a day. And this line's going to take forever to get to meaningful people. And it's like, no, 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 it's exponential. Because if, if, if you're just growing just by X percent a month, people, it's very difficult to get your head around compound growth. And it works that way with an audience too. And in month nine, maybe you're at 900 subscribers. What you're not realizing is if that audience doubles in the next six months, now you're at 1,800 and 3,600. And it, like, it's hard to wrap your head around for people, but it takes at least a year to kind of see that momentum kick in unless you just go, you know, purely viral, which is not something you can count on. It's more luck than anything. I love the whole compound growth thing. I was, this is about six months ago. I'm talking with my youngest son. He's 19. He's in college. He was talking about becoming a millionaire. He said, well, dad, what's the easiest way to become a millionaire? I said, that's easy. I said, put $15 a day into an S&P fund and 30 years later, you're a millionaire. That's it. <laughs> He's like, $15 a day is a lot. I'm like, okay, well, whatever. Like, don't buy a Starbucks and the sandwich or whatever. Like, anybody can do that. But it's the discipline and the ongoing. But you're right, the compound growth, that's what makes it. You start with $15, but then, you know, every year, that's always more the next time you compound, compound it. And people don't realize that. So it's just, you can do that with anything, right? So, but I love that. Joe, with your, your vast experience here, I mean, there may not be a better person to ask about the changes that are that you have seen with content marketing, you know, over the years. And what do you feel is different today, working today? Just kind of give a little color on, you know, I guess the current state of content marketing, you know, heading into 2023. It's, it's funny. I would love to say it's been, we've learned so much, but really what we've come down to realize is that marketers and corporate, so let's look at corporate content marketing. Corporations are so short-sighted. They're all on quarterly schedules. So like, what have you done for me lately? And what you realize is that for content marketing to work, it takes years. Like a lot of people don't realize, I, I talk about Red Bull Media House all the time. So Red Bull Media House, if you look there, you know, who, what's more valuable, Red Bull the company or Red Bull Media House? And I, I don't know. They're both billion dollar properties. I don't know which one's more valuable, but they're both pretty impressive. And people say, oh, look at all the videos they're doing. And they did the thing in the space with the guy and the, you know, they've got the entertainment division. It's like, yeah, it's pretty incredible. But did you know that started out as a print magazine in 2005? And it took them two years just to go full time with that magazine. And they, so it's been around for almost 20 years. So you look at all these examples and Mr. Beast is another one. So let's take the content creator side, creator economy. So like, oh, Mr. Beast, you just got lucky just at the right time. And YouTube was whatever. I said, Mr. Beast started creating videos 10 years ago. It took him three years just to figure out what he was going to talk about on a regular basis. In 2016, had 30,000 subscribers. Just just starting to hit this. Well, 2017 had a million. Now he's got 130 million or whatever it is. And he's a, you know, worth a multi-billion dollars because he's got the burger place and whatever he's, it's amazing story, but it's the longevity of it. And that's the issue with any program, any, whether it's a corporate program or not, you have so much turnover in a corporation. It's very hard for them to keep going on a strategic basis because when a new chief marketing officer comes in, the first thing they want to do is change everything. You know, that's what, that was the thing. It's like when back in the days of branding, you get a new CMO and it's like, oh, here, the logo is going to change. Of course it is, because that's what they got to do something. So that's the big thing. Now, beyond that and just keeping going, that's that's been the same. There's so much competition today. You can't just answer your customers' questions anymore and be found and make it on the top of Google and you'd be fine, which you could do in 2007 and 2008. Like there is a lot of, whether it's on any platform. Now, here's the opportunity. The average company, no matter what size, creates content, distributes content, 13 to 16 different places. That's according to CMI research. Most of those companies are failing miserably. What we find is that those that focus on one or two platforms and double down in those and say no to the rest, those are the ones that are successful. So that's in a day and age where we can say yes to every platform and it's all theoretically free, right? We could do TikTok and YouTube and LinkedIn and, and podcasts and whatever, but we have to decide 
where can we be the best at distributing this particular kind of information? So you have to make a decision. So that's where the one platform comes in. So when you start and you figure out, okay, what's your differentiation? The next thing is you might have to test it a little bit, but you have to figure out at some point what's your platform going to be. Is it going to be the blog? Is it going to be an e-newsletter? Is it going to be a podcast, TikTok, whatever? And then you, if you start on social media, then you have to come back and figure out, okay, that's rented land. How do I have create some asset value? That's generally today an e-newsletter. Maybe in the future, that'll be a Web3 NFT program or something like that. I know we're not there yet, but we're on our way at some point to getting there. But right now, number one is probably some kind of an email list. If you want to know how did BuzzFeed, you know, BuzzFeed, love them or hate them, how do they go from desperate times when they lost all their reach on social media platforms in 2014, 15 with Facebook, they rededicated themselves to create, they said, we're going to hit a million subscribers next year. Well, they did that. And now they've got 60 or 70 different email newsletters that you'd never know about. But those groups do. And Morning Brew, right? More, I mean, that's Morning Brew. The Hustle, who just who got purchased uh, by HubSpot for $27 million. You know, that was all an email property. Milk Road just sold. There's a, lots of things that are going on with just email. So that's it. So create that one platform and then have that email kicker in there somewhere. And you can go a long, long way with just that. But generally, once you build that minimum viable audience using that one platform and that email, then you start to diversify like a media company would. That's where you add your podcast, your event series, your webinar, your research program, whatever it is. And that's where it really starts to grow. So that's, I guess, my recommendation. What I've learned from the last like really 10 years is that it's never been more important to focus on platform. And we talk about messaging and who's your audience and all that. That's always been important, but it's that you can't be everywhere and be great. So you have to focus on one or two. And then once you build that audience, then you can go do whatever you want. I was going to ask you about the resurgence of newsletters, you know, over the last couple of years, but I mean, you just named three that, you know, had eight figure exits in the last couple of years, I think puts a real good bow on it. I want to tie the two of the points you made together about Mr. Beast and about companies not sticking with, with content marketing. So Mr. Beast is able to launch, his burgers are actually good. There's a place to fulfill. Well, I haven't had them. No, I mean, they're very good. They're very good. My kids love them. But you have someone, you know, content first. And I happened to happen across an interview with him the other night. And he talked about how for 10 years, not only did he he focused on YouTube. He obsessed about YouTube. He obsessed and tested thumbnails when people were dropping off in videos, what they can do different, like highly, highly scientific, lived it and breathed it for a decade. But he create he does that. He creates an audience and then he's able to create a product off that audience because he has that consistency in his content that you just talked about. Whereas brands that are selling products have a real difficult time getting their heads around that consistency. I've talked about on the show before, and we've kind of batted around with some guests, but how do you think about the notion that in the future, and I know this is a big part of, of everything you talk about, but you're almost better off as the big brands of the future are going to be brands that start out as content first because they understand that, they understand that they can communicate and cultivate an audience, i.e. consumers, whereas just traditional product brands are going to continue to struggle unless they you know, acquire one of those, those niche publications that we talked about before. How do, how do you feel about that notion? Like, How screwed are companies that don't think at all about product, no matter how good all about content, no matter how good their product is? I have this conversation a lot, especially with entrepreneurs, because I get pitched the product. And if you if you look at any stats on startups, you'll you'll see how bad they are. You know, most startups don't make it. And why do most startups not make it is because they start product first, because generally you look at your TAM, your total addressable market, you do all the research and the product and whatever. You're like, I got it. This is it. Whatever. And then you go out and you realize 99 percent of the time it's not right. For whatever reason, it doesn't work. Well, Let's take all that risk off the table. Let's just build the audience first. Who what you think is about. And you can have the product in your head and you might say in 12 months, that's the product you're going to launch, but it probably won't be. So it's just so much. I think that audience first is the business model of the future and forever from here on out. So what's happening to your big brands, like your, let's say your Coca-Colas of the world that are throwing off a lot of cash, they're having a tough time ongoing with the continuation. Coca-Cola's done, a, you know, with their content 2020 program years ago, they started to do a lot of really good things, but then it always stops. They always say, oh, let's go a new direction or a new campaign or whatever. You're seeing those companies just buy it. It's just too hard for them. They just can't get the consistency going. So you're going to buy it. So anyway, I talked to all these people. I said, put off your product for a while and let's position you as the leading resource instead. 
whatever that is. And that's where you have a little say into it. You don't even like if you go into, you know, Morning Brew and, and look at what Austin and who's the other, I forgot the other guy's name, Alex, maybe. And they went in with Morning Brew and they say, okay, we're good writers. We want to go that we think emails, newsletter, you, you could have a say, say, hey, you're a good writer. Okay, that, that's something that's a blog, e-newsletter component. Hey, are you good on the radio? You have a good voice? Okay, maybe it's a podcast then. Are you really good at taking short-form videos or whatever and putting those together? Okay, maybe that's TikTok or YouTube shorts. Like, you should have a say in what you're good at as an individual or a company, what talent you have. So you move forward with that. And then once you get to 18 to 24 months, then you get you probably get to a point at that. So you're at a year and a half to two years where you really have a good feeling about what product you can launch. So you've saved yourself a ton of money. It's so much more expensive to go out with a product than to launch a media brand if you do it correctly. And I'm not saying it doesn't cost money. We all know it costs money. You have to invest in marketing and people and editorial and production and whatever. But it's not the same as the manufacturing process of a product or a software as a service product where you have developers and coding. So just be smart about it and just go forward audience first. Yeah, maybe you don't want to launch that, you know, pie in the sky product that you have, but that's smart. That is the way to do it. So you're either going to launch it or you're going to buy it, in my opinion. I think that's what the most innovative companies of from 10 years that'll be 10 years from now are starting today with a YouTube shorts channel or a podcast or something like that. And then they will launch out. So who knows, like your Mr. Beast example is fantastic because you could, we could say that in five years, the 10th biggest brand in the entire world is Mr. Beast, right? I don't think that's unreasonable that that's the case because you can go any direction at all. You could sell anything. We've already seen that with influencers, but the difference with Mr. Beast is he's creating assets. That's why it's not influencer marketing. He's actually creating a media company and then launching products. And you could test those products, you know, and, and when you build the audience, you could feed it to a few people, you get instant feedback. And when you have an audience of a certain scale, instantly know if what you're putting out there has product market fit because you could you would effectively test it for free. Yeah, and that's why that's why at first media companies throw out a lot of different products because we don't know yet. It's like, hey, you built a you've built a super fan audience. Great, they will tell you really quickly what's working and what's not and what they will buy. Keep working it out, and then you'll know. Like we knew right away, I think, because because content marketing world. Who knew? This is 2011. It was the end of the Great Recession. We didn't know if this thing was going to work, and we put it out there because I thought that there was an opportunity in the marketplace. We asked some people. They said, "Yeah, we'd go to an event." I'm like, "Okay." We put it out there. We were expecting maybe we get 100, 150 people to come to Cleveland. Well, in the first two months, we had 300 signed up. I'm like, oh my God, there's something here. So we already knew this is going to be our baby. You know, we went and hired. Kevin Smith, you know, Silent Bob fame. He said, okay, have him go. So we started to really invest in it, made it bigger. We had 660 that first year because we already built the audience. If we didn't have that audience first, it would be much difficult, more difficult to go out and say, hey, we're just, yeah, here it is. I hope it works. And it's never been easier now to go out and do that. With our generation, normally you got into your own thing because you were unhappy in what you were doing. You we're most likely a little bit older in life. So now you're trying to find time to do that. There's always the question of how are you gonna then turn that into a money-making opportunity? So hence why there were so many hurdles and it was difficult. In today's world, with all of the opportunities in front of us to get out and, ex and, and get exposure immediately, even at, young, at all age groups, it's the best time to be able to go out and build an audience and then cultivate how you want to start a product if you want to start a product. It's just, it's never been a better time. I had a conversation with a couple of people the other day. We were fighting a little bit about whether you have to go to college today. Now, by the way, I got my master's degree. I'm a big proponent of college education. But that said, I can make a real good case that you don't need to go to college anymore, that you can learn a lot for free a lot of different ways. And you don't have to spend that kind of money and put yourself into debt. And at the same time, you can build an asset. So I've got two kids that are in college right now, and that's great because they don't know what they want to do and they want to go to college and spend that money. That's fine. You want to have you want to have college debt, do the whole thing that's been done forever that I had to go through and pay off. That, that's fine. But there's an opportunity here to do things differently. And anybody, I mean, it's the democratization of content, right? Anybody, anybody can do this. And that's also the challenge for any of the, the that's the big content marketing challenge because your biggest competitor from a brand standpoint used to be the two or three companies that used to sell your product. Not anymore. 
It's who has the audience. And a lot of kids, you're like, oh, who's that person? That YouTuber he lives in Boise, Idaho. And that, that podcaster's over here in, in India. And, what, and you're like, my competition is everywhere. Yeah. Okay. Well, you have to make some different decisions today because of that. My 14-year-old son continues to try to convince me that, yeah, essentially, he doesn't need to go to school anymore. He doesn't. It's over. It's over. Um, <laughs> well, see, that's the difference. Are we, like, are you going to school because you need to mature and you want to meet people? Like, that's, that, you know, we need to socially be, that's why school is really good for kids. That's the number one reason, in my opinion. It's just like the same thing with an event. Like, we have our event, Creator Economy Expo. Could you theoretically get that content other place? Yes, absolutely. You could find that, but you'll never get that in-person networking anywhere else. So that's where an event is an opportunity because if you're looking at like anybody can launch an online training program, anybody can launch a webinar series, anybody can do YouTube series, not many people. There's a barrier to entry for in-person events today. So if you can say, I'm going to spend six figures and invest in an event, there's an opportunity. So look at those types of those properties and products as well. But people won't enter. Joe, I know you got to get going. Last one real quick. We ask all of our guests, and then I want you to plug everywhere people could find, follow you, and, and subscribe to you. But we ask everybody, what is like one tool, service, product they use kind of in their day-to-day workflow? And not something like Slack, like you know, something maybe a level deeper that you use every day that you think might be beneficial to people in the audience who create content, content marketers. So mine's going to be weird. This is back to our original conversation, but every day I use a little app, silly app called Habit Bull. Habit Bull? Habit Bull. Hab- Habit and then B-U-L-L. It's really simple. I think it's a free app. But basically, I track, I track my goals every day. So at the end of the day, I'm like, did I do that? Did I do that? And every year, so basically what I do is I set my goals and then I'm like, okay, well, how do I measure those goals? And then if I do this, so for example, my, I have a goal this year to write two books, one marketing book. I got one book coming, Epic Content Marketing is coming out in March. I'll write one other marketing book and then I'm going to start on my second novel. Well, how do I do that? I got to write five times a week for an hour. So I got to track that and I have a little thing and I had to get a little check mark every time I do the five. So though, so it's so simple and there's lots of other things I use, but that Habitable app is probably the most critical because it reminds me the little actions I need to take every day so I can, so I can, can accomplish those big goals. That's a good one. That's a good one. All right. Tell uh, people where they can find you, where they could follow and subscribe. Oh uh, yeah. So me, uh, joepolizzi.com, P-U-L-I-Z-Z-I. You'll find everywhere, all my books. So you talked about Content Inc. I got Epic Content Marketing coming out, but the business that I'm focused on right now is The Tilt, thetilt.com. That's where you get two free e-newsletters a week. And we, we talk about how you build a business model behind content creation. That's all we for. A lot of people talk about content creation. There's lots of great places to get it. But all we're talking about is, okay, you're a content entrepreneur. How do you build your business? A lot of the stuff we talked about here. So I would just recommend if you're into this, sign up for that. And then I got a podcast, Content Inc., that talks about the same thing once a week. So that's all I'm, I'm doing these days. And then we have a foundation. I got to mention Orange Effect Foundation. That's the big foundation. We've had that for over 10 years now. We basically provide speech therapy services to kids who can't afford speech therapy services. And most of these children are on the autism spectrum. So that's theorangeeffect.org. So if you are empathetic toward uh, kids that are in that position that just want to be all the normal they can be and can get that speech therapy, that's what all those funds go for. Really good stuff. You got a lot going on. We thank you so much for your time. This was really good. And, uh, you know, look forward to connecting soon. Absolutely. Anytime, guys. Thanks, Joe. All right. So that was Joe Palizzi. And uh, really hard to have a better guest than that on this podcast. You know, I think he's got the sort of audience we aspire to have here at the show. One of the things that I find so cool about doing this is from time to time we'll have some like someone like him or Miles Beckler who are in the content creation space and really know the business. And then we'll hop back out into interviews with people like Doug Gollum or Drew Smith who are building, you know, smaller, more niche communities. And what's crazy is like you hear what Joe and and Miles have told us on these shows, and then you see people putting it into practice and you see it working. And I think a lot of time, I know my instinct these days when I see people putting together Twitter threads and, you know, motivational speeches about what to do if you're trying to build an audience. And sometimes you're like, are they full of shit? And like I'm, some people are, but when you hear people like Joe talk and then you see people putting it in the practice and you see him putting it in the practice, you're like, no, this stuff actually works if you dedicate yourself to it and, and have that consistency to, to go along with it. Yeah, because you, but you just use the magic word, right? It's dedication. And I think that's, I'm sure there are plenty of people, you brought up Drew Smith, you know, there, there are plenty of people 
who want to be able to have the luxury of covering sports, right? But you have to be dedicated to it, you know? Same with, uh, you know, uh, Doug, when you're, when you're covering, he's essentially the only person covering private jet aviation, but he's dedicated his life to that, right? Like, so you, you have to dedicate to it. You can't do something half-ass and expect it to be successful, you know? And if you're working on, like a lot of entrepreneurs, if you're working on two, three, four things at once, probably the hardest thing to do is to just pick one, you know, and, and go with it. But yeah, I think the guests we have on, especially Joe, are great examples of when you do, you will know very early on if you made the right decision or not. And if, and if it wasn't, then go pick one of the other ones you're working on. But Joe's absolutely, I mean, for a long time now, dominated the content space and has proven once again that you must have list building, as he you know, reiterated on the show, in order to be successful you know, with, uh, with his local events that he seems to really credit to being a launching pad for, uh, you know, for his entrepreneurial success. Yeah. And having the events pieces is really interesting. So in his book in content marketing, and I would suggest anybody who's listening to this, get it, get the audio book. He reads it. I think I told the story in the beginning of the show, we're recording this a few weeks after about how I was on a different call with him and recognized his voice from the audio book, but it's a very good book. I think some people who've, you know, had a blog or a podcast for a long time might find parts of it like simplistic, right? But it's an excellent, I, that's, I don't want to downplay it because it's an excellent overview of all the different ways you can monetize a content business. So if you are a podcaster who's got 100,000 subscribers and you make good ad money or a blogger who's got a great affiliate blog, sure, you might be able to skip that section of the book, but then there's another section where it talks about making ad dollars or being an influencer or hosting events. And it's like, huh, you begin to think like, wow, can I apply that to my business and open up an entirely new revenue stream? And, you know, it kind of all begins and ends with having that list because it kind of gives you that flexibility. But his, his way of starting with events is tough because they, you know, like they take time and planning and, you know, that's not for everybody. But if you could pull it off, there's a reason why like the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, all these like tech publications have conferences because guess what? They make a lot more money than the advertising dollars and they're, and they're good promotional events too. So whatever your niche is, you know. Doug Gollum should host a cross-country private aviation trip for his top 20 readers. And there's anybody can do it, you know, from big to small. Yeah, and he, to your point, and, and, and have one of the private airlines, you know, sponsor it. Because you know, they're bound to pick up one or two of those 20 people that are at that event. Totally. You know. The irony of all of, that we're, of what we're talking about is that today's generation of creators, because everything is so social-based, you know, it's, it, you know, it's TikTok, you know, their, their measurements for success are normally not revenue based. And I just, I mean, I read an article, I don't know, a day or two ago about how there's, you know, all of these abandoned TikTok accounts with, with massive followings because people just, you know, went out and did something and had fun and create, and then just didn't think to build a list or how can I, how can I, drive this for revenue or maybe a, maybe a bunch of them really just don't drive revenue you know maybe that's kind of the you know the core issue with a lot of a lot of social audiences but i think we're going to have a whole generation here of people who have grown up on the response the dopamine response of somebody you know liking or whatever sharing retweeting whatever you want to call it and they're going to realize like we I think we joke about quite often on the show that you know the bank does not accept those as deposits yeah, it's funny. I saw um, I saw a tweet yesterday or today about I guess an influencer. I never saw the guy before, but the tweet showed up thanks to the for you tab, and it was about some sort of AI tool that could um, like change the spots on a dog, right? So you've actually talked about this. So you talked about in a few years, like no one's going to buy a silver car. You're just going to get the car, and then the Apple glasses everybody's wearing at the end of this decade will allow them to see either whatever they want to see or what you've programmed your car to, to give off, right? And this actually reminded me of that because it was like he took a lab and it was like, wow, you could just type put spots on the dog and you can edit a video you know, of me running across a field, but I could turn me and my movements into Jar Jar Binks, right? And, and he, he's, he demoed this software for about 30 or 40 seconds and then he looked at the camera and I thought he was like, like being sarcastic, but then I realized it was, he wasn't. He's like, this is going to be so cool for TikTok, right? 
And I'm like, you know, as I'm watching this thing, I'm like, I'm thinking of the car thing you talked about. And I'm thinking like all the implications on society and filmmaking or, you know, changing news events, like, you know, all the good and bad that can come out of this. And his reaction is, this is going to be so cool for TikTok. And he was serious. Like you could see it in his face. And I was like, ugh, like, you know, that what's, is that, it is, you're right. It's cool. Very funny, interesting videos will come out of that. But, but then what? Yeah. It's, it's their whole life. Their whole, their whole life is in the phone. You know, like I've, I've said to my son countless times, I'm like, would you want me to buy you a, you know, like a computer for your room? Or, you know, would you want like a, an iPad? Like, yeah. Why watch everything on such a small screen? And they like it. They enjoy it. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And this will be a, a real macro thing here. And I won't, I won't go on along, but you know, the whole, the whole idea of the car, right. Is, I mean, what I believe is, and Apple seems to be talking about this. Apple's going to make a car that looks a lot like a Tesla. But it's, it is your like, it's the template car. You know, it's the blank template car. And then it will look however you want it to look for the skin you purchase it because everyone will have their very, very normal looking glasses on or eye contacts in that display the artificial reality that, that we are all, we will all live in. But sadly, and I guess in a good way for the upcoming generation, this is exactly what they want. And what they expect and how they want to live their life. For us, it'll be like, well, you know, this isn't great. But for them, it's what it's already their every day. So now we're, they're just going to take their every day and put it outside outside of the phone. And it's just, you know, it's just the dumbing down and the drilling down of, and everything becoming fake. And you have to determine what's fake and what's not. Yeah, that probably sounds crazy to most people, but it's not. Like you say a lot of things. Sometimes I think I was like, it's crazy. Right. And then like a year later, I'll be like, yeah, it's going to happen. Some version of that's going to happen. And when I saw that thing with the spotted dogs, how easy it was, you know, I, I took the car thing. You keep going to, I'm like, well, that, that is pretty easy. They're already at CES showing car paint that can be changed, I guess, by the owner. I mean, like this tech actually exists, but to your point, when everyone has glasses on their eyes, it's that much easier because the car doesn't need to change color. It's basically just a driving green screen. Everything's a driving green screen at that point. The whole world's a green screen. And the tech, you know, it's seamless. And it's the way, you know, people, this generation grew up having skins in video games. Say, hey, I'm going to get a cool car skin. I think of the poor, like, car painter. Like, I'm looking at a car, I'm like, oh, that metallic paint. They got the matte paint. <laughs> you know, that, that shit's expensive. It's probably a lot, lot cheaper, a lot less over overhead to uh buy the skin for five dollars yeah but just I, I mean without diving into it too much but just imagine too the car industry car industry essentially dies in what i described because it's one car that can do that and if all you need is the basic you know wordpress template of a car and then you put your theme on it to make it look like however you want you know that is the future so why would you have multiple car manufacturers well, so, yeah, and you could argue, you know, Tesla's doing the right things here because they don't change their designs. They're, rel- they're not the slickest looking cars around. You know, they don't update, but they are kind of timeless and everything's sort of barren. And I, I actually watched this thing, not to get in the cars, but I think it makes sense for this. I watched this, this video and it's like, well, why do all cars look alike? Like, why do all, you know, three row, you know, family SUVs look the same? And then why are are the high-end car companies like Mercedes and BMW, you know, making their cars so ugly lately, right? (laughs) Like these giant grills, like these really aggressive features or these like overly futuristic ones. And the answer is like, because they have to stand out. They have to differentiate themselves. And with electric cars, it's actually a bigger problem because a good electric motor, like they're all good. You know, it used to be that those companies had better engines and, but like the electric motors all kind of feel the same, you know, and if you're in, if it's a Hyundai or a BMW or a Tesla and it's got the same power, it all feels the same. And so, you know, you gotta, you gotta be able to customize it somehow. Yeah. Really, really interesting, uh, interesting stuff. I had another example there where it kind of, kind of escaped me. Oh, I know. I would like my car to look like a whale, right? Like there's gotta be a world where you're driving and it looks like a, like a fish going down the road or like an animal, right? You know, you can get nuts. Why just stop at paint? You know, I got it. There's my giraffe running down the road. It's true. Yeah. I don't know. It's me. Yeah. You're just, you're just in the body of the giraffe, <laughs> right? you know, within the dynamics of the artificial reality. And then there's just the legs and everything else moving and like a really floppy head. <laughs> yeah. Like that, like those children's books, you know, like with the big apple where the person sitting inside the apple. <laughs> we really went off course talking about Joe and the cars, but you know, 
this is well, okay. So all right, well, hold on. We got on that with the TikTok thing, right? But I, so I actually to bring it back to the thing. I actually think TikTok is a way to build and monetize an audience, but it can't be the only way. And we always talk about the funnel, right? So like all these people doing dances, right? That's cool. You might you got million subscribers. You should ask yourself, if you really want to do this, what do you do next, right? You're not, the ad dollars you're going to make from TikTok, if you do make it, will be fleeting, right? And the algorithm will change and you'll be screwed. But you could niche down. So there's two examples I like that I've seen as I've been using TikTok a little bit more. And it's so addictive. It really, it's so addictive. And now I basically get served like videos that are like husband-wife jokes, like things like husbands don't do. Because like I just like, you know, started liking those and sending them to my wife and now it's all I get. But... Uh, there's this guy who's a chef uh, and he critiques other like TikTok chefs and he's super dry and funny and he's like, you know, it's very watchable. And my thought is like, okay, that person, they're not going to make ad dollars, but he's becoming like the next Guy Fieri, right? You know, like you got this big audience, this top of funnel. So his next step should be like, I don't know if it's subscribed to my newsletter or, you know, like, hey, I'm launching my own brand of cookbook, Right. You know, and now you got a product and hit the link here and give me your email and I'll send you one for free. And like he could be, you know, celebrity chefs have existed for a long time and they've taken a different form. You know, they, they went from, you know, I don't know, Martha Stewart. Like who's the old one who had the cookbook? Who's the like old? Uh, Martha Stewart, wasn't it? Before that. Oh, 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 the, the British lady. Yeah. Talk like this. Yes. <laughs> right. And then the more modern version of that are the Guy Fieri's and the Gordon Ramsay's, you know, that capitalized on TV. And now you get the social one. So, like, there is a world for these people to go down. There's a guy who does Peter Millar golf stuff. All he does is review his Peter Millar shirts, right? Well, guess what? Guess what his audience of 50,000 people is? They're 40 year old male golfers, right? So, what can he do? He can make the perfect golf shirt, his own brand. A million things. He can do a million things. Now he's got a brand. But here, here's, and just to hit that point up one more time. So let's, you know, the, the chef, right? Dominating on TikTok in terms of getting an audience. But just move backwards a little bit. You know, be on the Today Show with your cookbook, you know? Because guess what's going to happen? Oh, you have X many followers on TikTok? Of course we'll book you. You know, just, just get, they, they just need to realize that they're not leaving TikTok. They're just expanding from TikTok and using that platform to go make revenue. It's just <laughs> that bridge seems to have been lost somewhere along the line. And I'm sure it will get reinstated, but I, I'm, I'm amazed. And maybe maybe that generation just doesn't feel like that their TikTok following is being taken seriously, but those days, those, those days are over now. I mean, you, you hit somebody up on Today Show or Good Morning America or whatever, and you say you have a massive following, you have a cookbook. I mean, the chances of them putting you on have uh, increased dramatically because they need that demo. Well, before you even get there, I mean, you use the publisher. So now you go to the publisher and, you know, it, it turns out the one thing like publishers want to know is like, hey, how much could you help sell this book? You might write the best book ever, but if you have an audience, you know, we'll, we'll give you the upfront. And it's like, okay, well, here, here's my audience and here's how I could sell it. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of these concepts are in uh, content inc to you know bring it kind of full circle to you know Joe Polizzi or say it's not to not use these platforms just to understand what they are and they should never be like the center of the business they might they might be the starting point and that's okay just just push the people down the funnel into something you own a website an email list even a podcast subscription that isn't really kind of dominated by one company let me ask you this while we're on the topic of you know kind of like different ways to bring in audience and and revenue how do you think at all that some of the AI stuff this week from Bing and Google impacts search, you know, impacts, you know, businesses that relied mostly on search. You know, most, I think, are, you know, most good businesses weren't just search, but like if it's answering informational queries, does that change what you want to rank for in search? Like, because that's a big part of a a lot of companies. I think the AI thing for search is going to be, is going to have phases. So, there are I think older people like us, I should say older, you know, 35 plus, who like the idea of having options when they search for something. They don't necessarily want to be told one thing and accept it. I think the younger generation who has been asking Siri or whomever for an answer real quick will be so much more likely to accept a simplistic AI-based answer within a search engine. So I think it'll be phasic in that sense. So, you know, we've talked about this before. AI still has to have its sources. 
And regulation, I think, will come in where you're going to have so much copyright and so much you know, BS going on with these things. There's going to have to be source data. And so I still think that will be part of it. And then ultimately, without belaboring the point too much, I don't know how much in the future any of it really matters because everything will be voice generated. And, and as, that, as the younger generation gets older, like I said, they're so much more prone to just trust whatever they've asked the machine that at that point of the phase, which I think is, you know, maybe 10 years away, maybe a little more, then I have no idea how you compete for search. Yeah. The example I think, you know, you know, just moving into a house and looking for a TV and I haven't bought a TV in five years, you know, that I've cared about, right? Like, and so I was like, all right, what's a good OLED TV? And my process is usually I'll read the wire cutter, which is a good site. There's, I think, R-T-I-N-G, like ratings, it's meant to, is a good one. And there's like one other site. So I usually search and I'll read those three sites and see if like, hey, do they all flag one of these same TVs? And like, all right, that one's probably good, right? Because, you know, they're, they're trusted. But I'm thinking, you know, and I spent an hour last night hopping between those sites. But like, if AI gets good and can do that for me and that you trust the result is from these respected sites, you know, A, I'm probably good with that. Like, had it thrown off the LG C2 or whatever I was looking at, you know, it's like, hey, based on the recommendations of these three sites, what I think is interesting though is, you know, does it unleash a new wave of search, which is A, you know, trying to not only rank for like some of these citations it'll give you, but go a step further? And like, do companies try and influence the AI? So think about it. If the AI is just trained on what's out there, right, it has to get pretty good about deciding what's real info and what's crap. What's to stop Samsung from hiring an agency to create 400 AI-generated websites that all review its product 8, 9, or 10 out of 10 and write long things about why it's the best TV? And now you've just fed the AI, like, like, is there this new wave in SEO manipulation coming where you can actually influence just through through sheer like volume, what is spit out like that? That kind of I don't think anyone like I'm sure someone's thought of it, but like I don't I don't think Google and Microsoft care right now. <laughs> and if you use an AI schema, and does Google say we only respect one one version of AI schema, and thus you can't have both? You, know, you can't have the Bing schema, or Google will pick you up. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like stuff like stupid games like that are probably gonna happen too. Interesting. Anyway, all the more reason to build your list. Exactly. <laughs> build your list, build your subscribers, and then use all the other stuff to go there. All right, so that was Joe Polisi. If you like what you listen to, make sure you tell two friends. Well, you know how these things start. One guy tells another guy something, and then he tells two friends, and they tell two friends, and they tell their friends, and so on. And so on, and so on. You know how these things go. That's always the longest 14 seconds sitting here waiting for that to finish. But I feel like we're, I feel like people who listen are being reinforced to tell two friends. It's true. What else should they do? Well, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, please give us a five-star rating. We would greatly appreciate it. And uh, thanks for listening. Back soon. 